What is MediaStorm, Matilda? <laughs> oh, I know this one. MediaStorm is the news podcast that starts with the people who were normally asked last. Right, but what does that actually mean? What do we do? Well, we investigate stories affecting marginalised communities from the perspective of those communities. So why does that make this week's episode a little weird? <laughs> well, because this week we're looking at policing from the perspective of the police. Yeah, not exactly a marginalised community. Can't argue with that. <laughs> that would, in fact, be the people on the receiving end of police brutality. And there's been no shortage of such testimonies with horrifying accounts of abuses of power and evidence of sexist, racist and homophobic cultures implicating policing as an institution. Okay, but our strapline also means something else. Go on. At MediaStorm, we speak to the people being spoken about in the mainstream media all the time, but never spoken to. And at the moment, that is the police. And I don't mean the commissioners or comms directors being rolled out to respond to the press. I mean those who make up its ranks. Right. I've worked in quite a few London newsrooms and every day there's a story about the Metropolitan Police whether that's individual officers who have committed crimes or about the force at large. And all we see to address it is the PR machine. High up officers being rolled out on mainstream media to say tight PR approved lines that actually don't address any of the problems. So this is important because when you actually listen to voices across the officer corps, you can spot a real disconnect between what public facing senior officers are telling us and what everyone beneath them is feeling. And with that cultural or communication barrier, you have to ask whether those at the top are actually in any position to bring about change. Which at the end of the day is what we all want and what many in the force want to. Although the question of how appears quite divisive. I do want to get behind the PL machine and find out what the hell is actually going on inside. Where are these terrible offences coming from? How do we or, or can we actually stop them? Because by now, so many of the issues we're seeing being reported on, while shocking, are not new. And unfortunately, our findings this week suggest all this media scrutiny may not actually be resulting in those cultural changes that are needed. In some cases, it may even be having the opposite effect. What do you mean? You may be familiar with the fact that the Conservative government pledged in its manifesto to recruit 20,000 new police officers by 2023. Yeah, and probably important to point out that this is mostly making up for officers cut during austerity. But yeah, they technically succeeded in that pledge. And you'd think a new generation of officers could be quite an opportunity to implement some of those changes we're speaking about. Yeah, I mean, I am not personally convinced expanding the force is the direction we should be going in, but it's certainly a chance to shift the makeup of the force and make it more representative and also make sure as hell that no more violent rapist types are getting in. Okay, well, in this investigation, I've worked with an expert on the inside to source and analyse exclusive freedom of information data on this recruitment. And it shows undeniably discriminatory practices at play, with ethnic minority applicants being rejected at a far higher rate than white ones. You're joking. And as for making sure no violent rapist types are getting in, I'm also being told that forces are actually cutting corners in a bid to meet that quota and giving people badges with fewer checks than ever before. Sorry, what? <laughs> with all that we're seeing reported in the press and all that we know about the many police officers being accused of violent sexual offences, how is this going under the radar? 
It has really made me wonder whether the mainstream media are asking the right questions. Because for all the times the media has recently mentioned institutional racism, is anyone looking beyond the label at what it actually means? Something I'm hearing from individual officers is that blame and accountability is falling in the wrong places. And that really is a topic for MediaStorm, where we try and find out what the media could be doing better to provide the real social value it was built to provide. I'm off to learn from lived experience. I'll be asking officers with a wide variety of professional and personal insights. What is really going on? First, we'll examine institution-wide practices. Then we'll hear about bottom-up cultural problems, top-down leadership problems, and external problems emanating from the government. And I'll see you back in the studio with two very special guests, founder of the UK's Black Police Association, Dr. Leroy Logan, MBE, and ex-officer turned Black Lives Matter leader, Chantelle Lunt, to discuss everything around this media storm. For more than two decades, David Carrick, a serial rapist, hid behind his police uniform. Wayne Cousins will never be released from prison. Admitted publicly that his force is institutionally racist, sexist, misogynistic. I, I mean, do you accept that I, there is still institutional I, racism? I don't find it a helpful label. Welcome to Media Storm, the news podcast that starts with the people who are normally asked last. I'm Matilda Mallinson. And I'm Helena Wadia. This week's investigation, UK police behind the PR machine. The video playing now was published by the Conservative government in April. A rotating, flashing police siren reads 20,000 new officers. Promise made, promise kept. With this pledge, a new generation of officers has arrived. And any new generation is a good metric of changes on the horizon. I was a police officer for the first 22 years, I think, of my adult life. I'm a chartered psychologist, a chartered scientist. And for the last 20 years or so, I've specialised around the implicit bias revolving around the police service. One person has been keeping a very close eye on the recruitment. We have had adverse impact against black and brown people within the recruiting process. Year upon year upon year, nothing's being done about it. Over the past few months, I've worked with Dr Pete Jones to gather unpublished data via freedom of information requests about these new police recruits and calculate what's called the adverse impact ratio for different ethnic groups. The numbers speak volumes. Among the forces that replied, black applicants were more than 40% more likely to be rejected than white applicants. Asian applicants also faced discrimination, being a third more likely to be rejected than white applicants. And minority ethnic groups as a whole fared 24% worse than white applicants. This was a once-in-a-generation opportunity for the police service to be representative of the communities that it served, and it's squandered it. To me, that's part and parcel of that implicit bias. It's this kind of assumption that the communities are somehow to blame. And why is that? Instead of looking at the process and saying, why is our process discriminating against black and brown people? They pointed the finger at communities and said, well, they don't want to join the police service, you can't make them. They are getting hundreds of applications from black people, from Asian people, but they are disproportionately failing in the recruit process. Now, at some point, we have to turn the mirror on ourselves and say, well, perhaps it's our systems that have done this. 
So is this the kind of thing that we mean when we talk about institutional racism? Is this the kind of evidence that quantifies it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know how many times the evidence has to be presented before the police service at the senior levels puts their hands up and says, look, as an organisation, we have had practices and processes which are fundamentally institutionally racist. There's no reason why a statistician who is working at College of Policing or working in the Metropolitan Police should not be able to identify exactly where in the recruit process the problem was and do something about it. But nobody is held accountable for recruiting. There's no targets. There's nobody asking awkward questions about them. It's interesting to me that you specifically underlined systems in your answer and, and not people. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's not necessarily about the individuals. You know, fair and equitable individuals can work within an institutionally racist system. I see the recruiting process as institutionally racist. I don't see all the assessors. I don't see all of the, the people who develop those processes or the HR managers who run them as racist. But I do think that the lack of scrutiny of the process and not seeing the patterns, those systems are institutionally racist. Even the, the 95% who are not racist, sexist or homophobic are going to find it really difficult for their practice not to become racist or homophobic if the systems force them in that direction. And I think individuals further down the organisation need that explained to them. We are not talking about you as a frontline operational response officer. We're talking about the systems that we operate. You know, try not to be defensive. I decided to put our findings to an officer, a black officer, who was rejected four times in three years before he was finally accepted into the Met in 1992. The first recruitment campaign for people from minority backgrounds in the police service took place in 1971. Here we are 60 years later. The police are very good at coming up with a plan. They're not very good at sustaining the plan. There's been so many wonderful plans. Don't tell me about what you're putting in the shop window. Show me what you're doing in the stockroom. My name's Gamal Tarawa. I like to be called G. Up until 2018, I was a police officer with the Metropolitan Police and all-round troublemaker. G <laughs> <laughs> has relayed the discrimination he's faced in a BAFTA-winning short film, The Black Cop. And they said, we think you're the wrong colour for the job. <laughs> and I had some of this shoe wiping up that we used to wipe in our trainers with. And they painted me white. The profession of policing, I am absolutely 100% proud of. Some of the behaviours within the culture, some of the people within the culture, I am not proud of. I want to talk about this grassroots culture in the police, how it catches on and why it seems to be so persistent. <laughs> if I had the answer to that question, I'd be a multi-millionaire. What, what would I say? It's, it's a culture that keeps getting repeated. Yeah, you want to fit in, you want to be part of the team, you want to be part of the banter, you want to be part of the fun. Part of it is the nature of the job. You very quickly see the world as us and them. You have a culture that marginalises. It's got a right-hand mindset. When the left-handers come in, it's very difficult to fit into that right-handed environment. You have to become ambidextrous. So when we're talking to the organisation and say that things need to change, 
the right-handers are looking around and saying, I don't get what you're talking about. Everything's fine. I, I mean, my left, my left-handedness, for want of a better phrase, would have been my color and my sexual orientation. The bullying just got to a point where I just broke and wanted to commit suicide. That was a big turning point for me. And the turning point was actually, I need to take ownership of me. I became the first openly gay black officer to come out. How long did you stay in the force and why did you ultimately decide to leave? I did 26 years. I was four years away from doing 30. And I think I'd got to a point where I got tired of being told who I should be. It was like breaking out and becoming the butterfly that I should have been years ago. This culture of marginalisation, as G described it, takes many forms and is present at many levels of policing. One that springs to mind was during a police operation in London. We had to go and locate and arrest a violent man for murder. The 20 or so officers of us that were on this operation, the only five female officers on duty were all posted together in one vehicle to remain down the road, safely tucked away out of sight whilst all the male officers surrounded the property where this guy was living. Introducing Sophie A. Matthews, an alias used by a serving officer, the same name from which she authored The Thinner Blue Line, a book that details her experiences as a woman in the Met Police for 14 years. We were all fuming, feeling very unappreciative and discriminated against, and the sergeant that organised this operation was actually reprimanded for this afterwards. But what annoyed us most was that during the briefing, when he posted the officers, nobody spoke up or challenged him. All of the bosses were present, but nobody challenged him. And I know why he did it. He just thought, women, weaker sex, get them out of the way. But we are there to do a job. And, you know, I honestly believe most officers and most people do recognise the need for both sexes in the police. But there was a male detective who I massively respect and had admired. He said in an open office one day in front of the whole team that no women should be police officers. And this was as recent as 2015. So we're only talking eight years ago. It's sad to think that is still there. But Sophie was keen to stress that discrimination is not just internal. In my personal experience, I actually have probably been more victim of public perception based on my sex rather than internally with the police. I was posted on a night duty with another female we responded to a call from some residents in a council block that some youths were smoking weed. We quickly saw that they were not youths, they were full-grown adult males, and there was quite a few of them. Very quickly, I was surrounded by these males who were big, five or six of them towering over me, very angry that we were there, and I knew straight away I was in trouble. I used all sorts of police tactics that were running through my head. Nothing worked, and I was left face-to-face with this huge guy towering over me with a clenched fist. I honestly thought, this is it. This is the first time I'm going to be assaulted on duty. I then heard literally a police car come flying around the corner, the sirens wailing. A male colleague jumped out, ran towards us. And no joke, all these men literally just scattered. And I had no doubt this was because this was a male officer. They didn't care that prior to that, it was two female officers. They didn't have any regard or respect for the fact that we were wearing the uniform. In this message, Sophie was not alone. I'm Chris Donaldson. Did 30 years in the Met Police as a firearms commander on the armed response vehicles uh, and retired in 2013. I never dreamt of being a police officer. Black kids in them days, to some extent now, don't consider the police force because of 
family pressures, community pressures. You're just one of those things you don't consider being. My first duty at Notting Hill, yeah? I was getting petrol bombs and bricks thrown at me by black people. A serving MP who still sits in Parliament, a black MP, came up to me in front of my colleagues and called me a Judas and a traitor. So a lot of young kids, black kids, who I've spoken to, who are really interested in the police, would never consider being a policeman because would I be rejected by the community? How am I to tell them no? <laughs> you know, I, I can't help but notice my question was about internal problems and you steered us away from that. Is that to imply that, you know, you, you don't think these internal problems are as relevant or, or that accounts of them may be unfounded? No, not at all. Of course it's not unfounded. I can only talk about my own journey. And the frustrating thing is, because I, I haven't got a negative experience, my journey and experience is dismissed. Out of hand. Literally, I'm, I'm laughed at. Oh, you're, you're gaslighting. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, I do know what I'm talking about. I didn't join to represent the black community. I didn't join to tick a box for the Home Office. I joined to be a police officer, and that's the key. Then, speaking as a police officer... Where do you think the problems that we are seeing reported could be coming from? It has a cultural problem, clearly. There must be a cleansing from inside. If you want change, you have to change the structure of organisation and the attitude of senior officers. And in my experience, an awful lot of senior officers do anything but want to be out on the front line, where all the complaints come from. Make it their responsibility being there on the ground and effecting change instead of talking about it. Poor leadership doesn't stop within the force. The more that the police signal modern-day progressive inclusive values, the more the government of the day push back. This is what we're terming a culture war. Right, uh, <laughs> let's have a look now at the Sunday Telegraph. Suella Braverman, our new Home Secretary, says no to wokeness. Fight crime and forget diversity and inclusion schemes. Owen West, a former chief superintendent in West Yorkshire Police, says the problem goes all the way up. To the government. If the government of the day are branding officers as woke or lefty, then that has a direct consequence. You can see this in protest policing. You know, we can see a clampdown in protest policing, the right to free speech, and you can see really draconian legislation coming in. And many police forces expressed real concern that this type of policing style would lead to a breakdown in trust and confidence and legitimacy. You know, the, the service generally is trying to move towards a more modern progressive agenda and trying to move away from, you know, coercion and the use of force. And that's uncomfortable, I think, certainly for this current government that wants to see more of a authoritarian, traditional approach to some of these policing areas. While we're on government policy, what do you think of the Uplift programme to recruit 20,000 new officers? You train incoming officers. So tell us, how do you think this recruitment drive has been affecting the police force and this progressive authoritarian tug of war that you've described? Any police force out there that doesn't reach its target suffers a financial penalty. And so forces are rushing headlong into getting as many officers into their organisation as they possibly can. Some forces don't interview anybody. It's all done automated. And I find it absolutely bizarre that somebody can walk into a police training centre, pick up their warrant card and get a uniform without 
ever having looked somebody in the eye and interacted. Now, I just hope that we don't get ourselves into a position in you know a few years' time when individuals that should not have been in the police service have got in on the back of trying to get to a political target. All of the officers I've spoken to so far expressed to me a pride in their work and a belief that things can get better. My next source was different. His experiences led him to believe that reforming the police is not possible, that the institution has proven itself unreformable. If that is true, what comes in its place? My name is Adri Pugh. I have spent four years in the Metropolitan Police. Whilst I was actually training to become a police officer, I received a text message to let me know that a family friend of mine was actually killed by the police. At that point, I was already ready to just get up and walk out and, and not come back. But his, his mum, my auntie Aji, sort of encouraged me and, and, and said, you know, no, stay. We need people like you on the inside. And then a couple of months later, Mark Duggan being killed in the way that he was by the police. Seeing and hearing firsthand the attitude of fellow colleagues and police officers towards Mark, that he's a criminal, he deserved what happened to him. I know that there are a lot of people that join with noble intentions and want reform and want to change it on the inside. That would have involved a lot of turning blind eyes and a lot of remaining silent to things that I wasn't prepared to remain silent about. And so my politics has shifted and I've moved away from the idea of reform and away from the idea of policing altogether. Does that make you an abolitionist? Yeah. I think a lot of people would wonder how that could actually work in practice. What does a society without police look like? What fills the gap left by the police? Abolition is a journey and it is a long-term process and plan. So we're not talking about we just get rid of the police tomorrow and all of the problems are going to just magically go away. That's not what we're talking about. It's actually saying, okay, what are the issues that exist within society and how do we address them? Much of policing is reactionary. It is reacting to things that happen. We are constantly chopping down branches without ever getting to the root cause of the problem, whether that is, you know, people that are adequately equipped to respond to people in a mental health crisis and making sure that communities are properly resourced. When I look at the safest parts of our society, they're not the, the parts that are the most heavily policed. They're the parts that are the most heavily resourced. It's, it's also a project of the imagination. It's just daring to imagine a different world. We've been having conversations about reform for longer than I've been alive. It clearly isn't working. If the purpose of today's investigation is to ask people with lived experience of policing where the problems really lie, I'd like to share an observation. A pervasive feeling among officers I spoke to, on and off the record, is a feeling of disgruntlement, of betrayal, by their seniors, by the public, by the press... It's not a feeling that lends itself to unified, collective change. These police officers are us. They bleed, they cry, they have emotions. We've got to remember there are humans behind headlines. I asked Oliver Lawrence, host of Protect and Serve, where this estrangement was coming from. 
I think balance and proportionality is the key to this. You very rarely see good news police stories on the news because they, they just don't sell papers. Policing is a very quick fix. It becomes solely reliant upon for the failures of other government departments. And and the problem is, is that, you know, when the media report on these things, you know, the police are pulling away from mental health provisions, police is letting down communities. And then the media's balance around reporting on that can sometimes be A, misleading and B, quite hurtful. What I'm just trying to get across is there are far more good than there is bad. Today, we want to ask how the media can be constructive in holding police forces to account and where it might be having the opposite effect. That takes us back to the studio. Thanks for sticking around. Hey, lovely listeners, we've launched a Patreon where we will be making available exclusive insights into today's investigation, such as the original data behind our findings, uncut video interviews, and an extended cut of the studio discussion you're about to hear, all for less than the price of a cup of coffee per month. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash podcast and join the MediaStorm community. Welcome back to the studio and to MediaStorm, the news podcast that starts with the people who are normally asked last. Our first guest is a former superintendent in the Metropolitan Police, where he became one of the UK's most highly decorated and well-known police officers during 30 years of service. He was involved in the Stephen Lawrence Inquiry, which investigated institutional racism in the force, and was a founding member of the Black Police Association, and is played by Star Wars's very own John Boyega in Steve McQueen's Red, White and Blue, a serialisation of his incredible struggles against racism in the Met Police. We are thrilled to be joined by Dr. Leroy Logan. Welcome, Leroy. Thank you very much. I was, I was wondering who you're talking about. <laughs> no, I was very thrilled, very honoured, very humbled. Thank you. Our second guest is a writer, lecturer, PhD researcher and activist with a background in policing and national security. She worked as a police officer from 2017 to 2018, but was subjected to racism and sexism that was logged as a hate crime against her. This led to her founding Merseyside's BLM Alliance. She was elected Labour Town Councillor for Halewood North. Joining us today all the way from Liverpool, welcome to the studio, Chantelle Lunt. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for that introduction too. Pleasure. You each demonstrate really fantastic examples of driving reform, but in slightly different ways. Leroy, you are a founding member of the Black Police Association and have been described by the press as the man who risked everything to fight racism in the police force from within. We want to focus on that last bit, the from within bit. From your extensive experience trying to bring it about, do you believe internal reform is possible? And what do you think it will take? Well, I think... Internal reform is only possible when you've got the political will to go with it. We saw significant reform after the McPherson inquiry into the death of Stephen Lawrence and the subsequent report and recommendations were being independently assessed. So we weren't leaving the police to mark their own homework. So equality, diversity and inclusion was up the agenda for this current government took the pressure off and they defaulted back to what they're comfortable doing. So you think it's possible, but we're not heading that direction right now? No, it might be after the general election. We don't know. Thanks. 
And I'm turning to you, Chantal. You actually ended up leaving the force and pursuing your anti-racist activism from the outside. So why did you decide to do that? And do you believe that internal reform is possible with the police? I remember when I did leave because it was a year after. So I'd had around nine months of racist and sexist bullying, which was just really, really intense and obviously caused me to almost have a complete mental breakdown, took time off work. And at that time, I could have just left. Like, it probably would have been easier if I'd just left. And I was like, do you know what? No, I'm not going to leave at this point. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise it. I'm going to attempt to do something about it. And I'm going to stick around. So it was logged as a hate crime. But then quite quickly, it was clear that nothing was really going to happen. And, you know, it's quite well known what the police do now in response to instances like that. They move people around. They don't, you know, people don't get sacked. They sort of problematise the victim as opposed to the perpetrator. So I was subjected to all of that. And... For a long time, I was a bit of a pariah within the force. Like, no one wanted to work with me because I broke the, you know, the blue line of silence where we don't tell on other officers. But over this time, I got offered a permanent role. I was offered, you know, the force to pay for me degree and put me on this pathway to be, you know, a chief superintendent or whatever. And I remember looking in the mirror and I had the uniform on and, you know, people weren't being horrible to me anymore. And I looked in the mirror in the uniform and I thought, has anything actually changed? Does any of those issues that I flagged had they been addressed? And the answer was no. I could still see women being subjected to misogyny. I could still see the issues that I'd raised around racism and nothing happening. And it was clear to me that the the sort of condition of me saying was, well, just don't, don't tell tales again. Do you know what I mean? You'll be fine. You'll progress if you just don't raise these issues. And so for me, it was a case of, I can't be in a force where I'm expected to look the other way. I've gone through the entire complaints procedure and I can see that it doesn't work. So I have no voice to fight against it. Mm. Well, I think today what we're going to do is dive a bit more into the media's role in all of this because, you know, they are so intertwined. And our interviews with police officers throughout this episode exposed a communication gap between the police and the public, but also between high-ranking officers and low-ranking officers. So some officers felt like the leaders weren't defending their good work. But from the outside looking in, it it seems like all we see is senior officers being wheeled out on these mainstream media platforms to defend and to deflect criticism. So from we had Cressida Dick, now we've got Mark Rowley and the Met Police rejecting the term institutional to describe various problems. So we want to know what's really going on behind the PR machine. So Leroy, I wonder if you can explain to us how that machine works. Who decides what messages to put out to the press? Are those messages necessarily accurate? Are they communicated to the force at large? It depends on the, the force area, really. In terms of the Met, where I spent 30 years... I saw that it not only suffers from institutional racism, sex and misogyny, it also suffers from institutional arrogance because it has this national responsibility, terrorism, royalty protection, diplomatic protection. And so the PR is normally very... We know what we can do, and if we can't, we'll call you. They're, they're, they're very reluctant to show weakness. They're very success-driven. They've got this um, sense that, well, no, it's not a sense. They are gaslighters in chief. So they will say to everyone, there's nothing to see here. And people, including the media, were buying into this narrative. What offset that was Sarah Everard. Because for the first time, the wider public was starting to recognise 
that we cannot assume that you were a troublemaker and police were just doing their job because look at Sarah Vard. She was just going home and cousins kidnapped her, raped her, murdered her. So all of a sudden, the media is starting to get a bit more savvy to this. They are starting to think, hold on, we're going to ask you a bit more questions. But they can, from time to time, still buy into the narrative about, oh, the police knows best. Thanks for for talking us through that. Something else we heard from officers that we interviewed in the first half of this episode, I mean, a lot of them are feeling really personally attacked by this coverage that you're talking about, the coverage we're seeing more of since Sarah Everard, since George Floyd. And, um, And something that they said was, oh, the press is only reporting now on the bad things police are doing, not the good things. We actually searched headlines you know, over the past week, and this doesn't really check out. You know, most of the stories are, you know, oh, police are chasing up on this crime and this criminal is getting this sentence and local news updates on police investigations. It's not overwhelmingly negative coverage at all. I don't know, Chantal, like from your experience recently within the ranks, why do you think people are feeling so disgruntled and what should we, if anything, take away from it? I feel like for a lot of police officers, they kind of individualise it and personalise it. So quite often when I give talks, when I attend events, there's always an officer or, you know, it's usually a white man who walks up to me and he goes, I just want you to know I've never seen any racism. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> but I genuinely believe that they, if they haven't seen it and if they haven't done it, then it, it's not happening. And sometimes, you know, I have to very slowly explain to them what well, what glasses are you using? Are you using your white man glasses? Because, you know, my black woman glasses probably sees a lot more than you see. The bystander effect is really, really powerful. Being in a room full of officers and, you know, one white officer's done something and everyone in that room didn't see anything. No one in that room backed them up when they, when they raised the issue. No one in that room would give a statement. No one in that room would support them. I bet everyone in that room thinks that they're not racist. Everyone in that room thinks that they're a good officer. But your, you know, your, your legitimacy as a good officer fails when you look the other way, when bad officers are doing what they do, because that's what gives them power. Mm. That individual element versus the institutional, that is so important because, you know, not every officer kidnapped and raped and murdered Sarah Everard, but, you know, officers were in WhatsApp groups with Wayne Cousins, Officers were enabling him. Officers were laughing at his jokes. He had an he had a nickname, the rapist. People were laughing at that. People went along with that. And that's something that you don't see senior officers calling out. So they're being protected. There's no way cousins could be called rapey and not being protected somehow. And then the level of professionalism is dumbing down, saying, "Oh, it's just a joke. You've got you've got a chip on your shoulder. You should be able to take a joke, you know." But in the name of, of a joke. You can be racist, sexist, homophobic, Islamophobic, you name it. And that's one of the things they still can't get. Yeah. Lately, we've seen, obviously, a lot of instances and examples and evidence of racism, of sexism, of horrendous chronic power abuses within UK police reporting in our press. And officers we spoke to had various uh, perspectives about the root cause of the problem. Is it top-down leadership, bottom-up culture, or is it external to do with government, society at large? Um, Could you each tell us, from your lived experience, what are the biggest barriers to police reform? 
I think hierarchy is a big barrier. I'm sure we all remember when um, Nicole Smallman and Bieber Henry were murdered and those horrible pictures were going around police WhatsApp groups. Yeah, just to give just to give the context, that was when police officers on the crime scene took photos of the bodies of these sisters, selfies with them in it and, and shared them around. Yeah, in a lot of WhatsApp groups with a lot of officers. Do you know who actually raised the alarm about that? A probationer, which is essentially an officer in training like what I was it's often officers who are younger in service who are coming in and kind of seeing it with those fresh eyes who haven't internalized that culture and the reason why this is a point of tension often within the police force is because of the hierarchical nature of the police force so I'm sure that young woman who saw those selfies would be a massive voice in looking at how we imagine a police force that serves the needs of the community but because of her rank probably every time she opens them off she, she hasn't been listened to in the same way as other officers so I feel like the police has to flatten that pyramid i'd say a lot of these younger officers who are coming through gen z and so on they're the ones we really need to be listening to because they they really will not put up with it and so their voices need to be as valid as the officers who've got 30 years plus service thank you leroy do you agree yeah yeah but um i I build on it from this point of view because policing was actually set up to protect the haves from the have-nots so their actual system is very protective and so if they're challenged, they close ranks at the expense of truth and justice. So that's why I was very clear that I have to join with a certain mindset. I'm a black man who happens to be a cop. I'm not a cop who happens to be black. Big difference. And even the white majority male colleagues don't have a real identity outside the organisation. That's why a lot of them, they're like a fish out of water and they say, well, what do I do after 30 years or 40 years? Oh, they become a police staff member or they're going to local authority where their other mates are, you know, because they can't operate outside that bubble. Right. What I really appreciate about this conversation is that you are pinpointing such clear institutional issues. I mean, the hierarchical structure, the, the infectiousness of the culture. And I wonder whether the media is kind of failing to get into that nitty gritty of, OK, sure, we, we want this label of institutional racism to be confessed to. But what does that actually mean? And one example of this is this recent uplift program the recruitment of 20,000 new officers and on our investigation this week we sourced the ethnicity data of everyone who applied cross-reference that with everyone who was appointed and there is clear evidence that there was very racist discriminatory practice in play during this recruitment black applicants were 40 percent more likely to be rejected than white applicants and while we saw the 20,000 recruitment number bandied about loads in the media, you know, Boris Johnson dressed up as a police officer saying, oh, we're, we're recruiting 20,000 new officers. I, what we haven't seen is any actual interrogation of what institutional practices are in play that are creating this problem. I mean, what's your, your responses to, to that data, to those findings? Does that fit with your experience of, of applying and promoting? Yeah? I'm not surprised at all. I mean, we saw that with the... Uh, uh, recruitment, retention and progression figures in the McPherson, the recommendations were clear. I was working with the Home Office around this and it, you, when you do that cross-cutting work, it's very clear that they deselect people even before they through the, the application process and then they'll actually uh, offer jobs to people who look like them. 
And, and then even when you get in the organisation, you're demotivated. You're not going to get the opportunities that your white colleagues get. A lot of them, they have the social networks that you're excluded, maybe because you're black or you have a certain faith or agenda, whatever it may be. And people lack confidence. It needs an analysis around this. And I'm, I'm, that's one of the reasons why I thought, I'm going to come to this conversation because you're looking into the, the nuances of it all, which is really important because there's too many people just overlook the um, norms and values of the culture and how it impacts on everyone's day-to-day lives. And until a, a real piece of work is done, objectively, with clear evidence and analysis, and you've got the testimonies, it, it, it will be something that I, I truly believe will start to chisel away at this control and power of the police federation in particular and uh, just keep on doing that because that, that's the only way we'll really get the, the police service we all deserve. It's time now to look at some of the stories making recent headlines on this topic. Uh, a few favourites from the Daily Mail recently. Arrest the harm caused by the woke police. This is an editorial piece from the paper asking, are they the ardent and uncritical champions of woke causes or the enforcers of law and order? And claiming police appear less interested in criminal justice than social justice. Another Daily Mail headline uh, hinting at where this could be coming from reads, Home Secretary Suella Braverman tells woke police chiefs to spend less time on diversity and concentrate on fighting crime. What are your thoughts on on headlines of this kind and and, and what do you think the the impact is? Um, I I get annoyed at... at I don't know, call it a newspaper if you will. (laughs) (laughs) Rags like the Daily Mail really, you know appropriating the term woke which is rooted in the black civil rights movements of the 1970s in the US and it was essentially speaking to the fact that people were awake to the injustices and discriminations faced by a minoritized group and to be woke meant that you essentially empathized and were prepared to do something about those barriers that were very real and now it's just sort of being used you know by rags like the Daily Mail as a throwaway comment to sort of delegitimize people and to and to almost mock anyone who wants to, you know, actually see what other people's lived experiences are. But to, to call the police woke almost makes me laugh. It's yeah. completely false. It's, <laughs> it's like, like, could they be more unwoke? I know. Have you actually been in a police station? Have you ever spoken to a police officer? And, you know, I looked at some of these articles and, you know, some of the imagery was the police are pride and things like that, which is absolutely great. You know, there are officers within the force who are LGBTQ plus and it's brilliant that they feel supported and they can go to Pride but quite often when we speak to this PR machine that is the police woke is a really shallow PR attempt at looking like they're engaging with real issues so it's when you see your dancing police officers a carnival it's when you see your police officers a Pride but you don't see police officers when black houses are being broken into and that's when black communities are being unprotected. And a lot of people were really questioning, well, you, you, can't, you can't turn up at our marches, you can't come to Carnival and dance with us and then ignore us for the rest of the year when we actually need you. Black communities are asking genuinely to be protected. LGBTQ plus communities are asking to be taken seriously when hate crimes are committed against them. So this, these these. These headlines drive me mad because they're false and and no one is actually being saved. The police aren't woke. They're not helping anybody. If the police were woke and they were using a term like woke, I'd be like, you know what? They see diversity. They see the needs to be representing and meeting the needs of communities who are quite marginalised. 
The Daily Mail can put, you know can make fun all they want, but the fact is what the Daily Mail are referring to is just a real superficial PR that the police often engage in. So I don't like the headlines and I don't like the suggestion that the police are woke because they're not. Yeah, and this is a massive form of gaslighting. I remember during the, the George Floyd issues and um, taking a knee was um, oh my something God. that... That you know, went on and on, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And, and and then Cressida Dick said, oh, well, I'm telling officers that they can't take a knee. And I, and I thought, well, why would you want to say that? There's one thing about being a police officer is you still got the element of discretion. So if you find you're in a situation that your discretionary powers means you can show some form of embracing the community, working with the community, building bridges, not barriers. I mean, doesn't that mean you might police better? You might tackle crime better? It's about trust and confidence because police are not seen as approachable because of this testosterone-driven militaristic person and I don't need you unless I call on you. So back off and they will escalate everything they go to. They're not trauma-informed, they're not trauma-responsive. You know, it's all Robocop stuff. And, and until such time, they understand it's not a control and power thing. And you're there to be a public servant, to show people that you're a human being and you can understand their situation. Even if you've had to arrest them for, for certain things, you still respond in a professional way and don't stereotype them. Try and help their situation that their police constable or sergeant or whoever is there for them and not there to do something to them and that's what these sort of headlines about let's do things to people and not be there for them right i wonder does or why does the police as a job police officers as a job attract those men who are testosterone fueled who want power and control is that a fair thing to say does it attract people like that white white supremacy is drawn to policing because of a the control and power. When you think about the power of a police officer, it's, you don't have any, not in the military have that unless you're in martial law. So to take someone's liberty away just on sometimes you've had a bad day. It's got nothing to do with intelligence. It's got nothing to do with information you received. It's because you failed the attitude test. The nature of policing, if you are into the control and power, is an automatic attraction for white supremacists. Right. Can we talk about also the involvement of Suella government here because something that uh, an officer I spoke to you know he said oh this government is going in a really scary direction they're trying to position police against people which is kind of like what you were saying with not allowing them to take the knee and to relate to the people that they're supposed to be policing um, and you know just lately we've seen a lot of headlines um, because Suella Braverman has come out and been like oh hey I back police to ramp up stop and search efforts and you know she's not really doing anything she's just saying something and she's getting a headline in every paper for it and this is clickbait this is a culture war and the media is is playing into this politicization of policing this propaganda that's really serving you know very populist political agendas and I mean I, I 
I wonder if you if you think that the media is guilty of playing into politicians' hands and using the police as as a prop in that way. Daily Mail is for sure, a hundred percent, aren't they? And when I was reading the Soella headline and reading the article, I thought it was really interesting because they can't really get away with the black on black crime narrative anymore. So instead, they say black young men are more likely to be the victims of knife crime. So they've just flipped it on its head a little bit, and it's a bit like you're still problematizing and pathologizing the whole you know, black community. And so for me, stop and search, there's a suspicionless stop and search that can be used in supposedly exceptional circumstances where it's suspected that there'll be serious violence or disorder. They're massively used in diverse communities and disproportionately used in diverse communities. But the charge and arrest rate for that section 60 suspicionless stop and search is 4%. So 96% of the people who are being stopped and searched have done nothing wrong. That's like clear evidence of racial profile. That's the clearest evidence that this, when they are given that power, they will disproportionately use it against young black people. And stop and search alone does nothing because those issues are still there. And it feels like so much of policing is just reactive and there's no proactive work. The only way you will take away those young boys feeling like they need to carry knives and these young people feeling like the only way to get ahead is to sell drugs is by putting real opportunities in communities that have none. And I'm not talking about racial communities, I'm talking about working class communities, the white communities in my area too. The whole pathologising of young black people and making it a black issue really is a misdirect because it's a societal issue. And as you take away the funding and you take away the opportunities and you take away any hopes and aspirations for young people in working class areas, that's when you see all the violence ramp up. Dr. Leroy Logan, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people follow you and do you have anything to plug or say? Well, yeah, you can follow me on my, my website, LeroyLogan.com and it has on there my Twitter feed, LeroyLogan999. Please don't report crime on my Twitter feed. The triple nine <laughs> was something that I thought, well, it just shows I'm, I actually do value being a police officer because there's some great people in there. It's just that, unfortunately, we're not sure if they're outnumbered, the good people also contributed to a book called Black British Lives Matter. And, of course, the Small Axe film, Red, White and Blue, is still out there. So please go and check it out on iPlayer or, if you've got money, Amazon Prime. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I'm still around making a, a annoyance of myself. I'm that pebble in the shoe that itch you can't scratch. Yeah. Uh, anything else I can think of. So <laughs> it's good being there and, uh, yeah. Chantal, how about you? Can people follow you? Is there anything you'd like to plug? So I am Chantal Lunt, I think, on all social media platforms. It's in different variations. There might be an underscore in there or a dot, but you should be able to find me. I'd love to plug why I'm no longer talking to Institutionally Racist Police. That's the podcast that I do with Michael Morgan, available on all good podcasting platforms. Follow Midside BLM Alliance or Midside Alliance for Racial Equality on um, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram too. Thank you for listening. Just a reminder, we've set up a Patreon, so if you want to support us, follow the link in the show notes. We'll be back next week with a mini episode about when Helena and Matilda went to Parliament and our next investigation into transgender rights and the facts behind Scotland's self-ID laws will be out on the 13th of July. Follow Media Storm wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get access to new episodes as soon as they drop. 
If you like what you hear, share this episode with someone and leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps more people discover the podcast and our aim is to have as many people as possible hear these voices. You can also follow us on social media at Matilda Mal, at Helena Wadia, and follow the show via at MediaStormPod. Get in touch and let us know what you'd like us to cover and who you'd like us to speak to. MediaStorm is an award-winning podcast produced by Helena Wadia and Matilda Mallinson. It came from the House of the Guilty Feminist and it's part of the ACAST Creator Network. The music is by Samfire.